Am I allowed to say Merry Christmas as well? Merry Christmas. It might seem like a Christmas miracle that we are actually back in Hebrews. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. It's been a, a little bit since we've been working through our sermon series through the letter to the Hebrews. If you do not have a Bible this morning, there should be some, hopefully, pew Bibles, Bibles around you underneath the chair. In those Bibles, you can find this passage on page 942 of that, of that pew Bible. I know you're looking around going, we don't have pews. We used to have pews in here. We're very thankful to have chairs, but we just refer to those as our pew Bibles. And just so you know, uh, our gift on Christmas to you, if you do not own a Bible or if you have a friend, family member who needs a good translation of the Bible, the ESV, there are others as well, but that's the one we use. Take that, that pew Bible, and either receive the gift for yourself and keep it and read it, or give that to a loved one. That would be awesome. Uh, we would be happy to replenish the ones that go missing today. Okay, so we are looking at verses 7 through 19 of Hebrews 3. And Troy opening us up in Psalm 95 uh, was very appropriate because the author uh, to the letter to the Hebrews, he is going to reference that passage, Psalm 95, in our passage today. So please follow along in verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today... If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers lest there be in any, in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today... If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt by, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, if you've already forgotten the verses that Troy read, I think it's just really interesting that that, that psalm begins with a call to let us sing songs of praise to God. And it is those first seven verses the, the appropriate response for people who have experienced 
God's grace and his mercy. So just hear some of the words. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. That is the call, and then there is this hard shift that takes place that is crying out to the people, today, if you hear God's voice, turn, listen, respond. Where we need to be is the first half of that psalm, where we find ourselves in the midst of this journey in life that is difficult, filled with trials and circumstances of various kind, tend to make us kind of live in that latter half of Psalm 95. Our passage this morning in Hebrews chapter 3 is inspired by the Spirit to shake us, so to speak, to wake us up from our slumber. And by slumber, I mean living a life that is not honoring and glorifying the Lord, not responding in appropriate ways to his great love and tender mercy and his care and provision for us. So many of us enter into this Christmas morn, as was mentioned by Dennis, enduring a year of, of heartache, of difficulty, have been presented with trials of various kinds. And this morning, I, I pray that God would help us analyze and assess how we are responding to him. That is what matters, not, not what comes out of our mouth, not necessarily behavioral modifications, but what we'll see in this passage, zeroing in on our hearts, what's actually going on in our hearts in response to the God who has been with us, provided for us, and has just overwhelmed us with his grace and mercy, those who are in Christ. I want to begin by just um, highlighting what I think really helps us enter into this passage. In verse 7, the beginning of our passage this morning, the author of this letter, writing to Hebrew Christians, says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. Now, that's important for us to just pause for a moment and realize that Psalm 95 is about to be quoted. And if you're, if you're not quite tracking just yet, every word in the Bible comes from the mouth of God. The Holy Spirit says, and then we're about to hear a psalm that was written by a man, but a man who was carried along by the Holy Spirit and is exactly what we and the original recipients of this letter needs to hear. So although the Psalm 95 was written long ago, it is not a relic, some old ancient text that is not relevant today. We see in chapter 4 of Hebrews that God's word is living and active. And when we hear that the Holy Spirit says that is in the, the present, 
That is a reality for the original recipients of this letter, and it is a reality for those who are reading it today. The introduction that is the Holy Spirit speaking and addressing today should also land on us. So this is the word of God. It is living and active for us to hear. And this emphasis that, that today is, is the highlight, is, is what we are to, to hear, to receive. What is about to come from this passage is relevant and needs to be heard and responded to today. So you may be sitting there going, okay, we're, we're in the book of Hebrews. Uh, we're, we're looking at some quotation from Psalm 95, and it's beginning to drift in relevancy. The Holy Spirit is speaking today. If you are hearing my voice as a mouthpiece from God's word today, listen. On this Christmas morning, if you thought you were going to come in and hear a 15-minute kind of homily about this baby being born in a manger, there is truth and reality and joy in that, in that, um, in that experience, in that event. But, but today, we're back in Hebrews 3, and this is a, a word for all those who call themselves believers, those who profess the faith in Christ. Psalm 95 draws together two incidents from Israel's travels in the wilderness. This is going to be really important. There was an episode that happened in Exodus 17 where the Israelites, after they had been brought out of slavery, bondage in Egypt, and God's bringing them to the promised land, they experience great thirst. And because they were thirsty and longing for water, they quarreled and tested God. And in that, in that event, they questioned the presence of God. Is the Lord among us or not? God was the one that delivered them out of Egyptian bondage. He was the one that, that opened up the Red Sea for all of them to pass and then closed it on the Egyptians who were coming after them. He was the one that delivered them and has provided for them. And in this episode, they even question if he is among them. Then there's another episode that we, we see wrapped up in Psalm 95, where the Israelites are fearful and rebellious in their response to God telling Moses to send spies into the land of Canaan, if you remember this, observe what's going on there and bring back a report. You see that in Numbers 13 and 14. We'll, we'll look into those stories in, in just a bit, uh, but there are two meaningful place names that are mentioned in Psalm 95. We don't see that in the, in the quotation in Hebrews 3, but in Psalm 95, Meribah and Massa are two names, two uh, place names that are mentioned, and they mean something. In the Septuagint, in the Greek, they, those words are translated rebellion and testing, which really just kind of encapsulated what, what, um, what the people uh, were viewed as in response to God during this time. Rebellion, testing. 
Doubting the presence of God, doubting the provision of God. This is going to connect to us, just keep tracking with me. The account of Israel's rebellion in the wilderness is to be a very useful uh, example for those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. We know this because as you work through the New Testament, there is many references to this experience of the people wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And so we are to listen. Today, listen to what God is trying to tell us through this example of the Israelites roaming through the wilderness. There are many parallels. One, just for you to think about. I've mentioned this several times. They were, they were rescued and liberated from bondage in Egypt. There's a lot of parallels to us spiritually being rescued and liberated from sin. What we also see in the, the, the story of the Israelites being brought to the promised land is that during these wilderness years, they were not home yet. So they've experienced rescue and liberation physically from the Egyptians, but they weren't yet home. We we can, we can enter into that reality. If you are in Christ, you have been rescued and liberated from your sin, and yet we are told, we know this, we are sojourners here on earth. We are not yet home. Christ has promised, we celebrate the first advent, him coming, he has promised to come again. And when he comes again, all things that are still disjointed or not properly restored he will do. He will restore all things. He will make all things right that are currently broken. We will experience life and life abundant in the new heavens and the new earth for eternity when Christ comes and there's the final judgment, the resurrection of the dead. All of that is to come. And so we live in this journey as a sojourner. And so these parallels are, are helpful for us. What I want you to, to make sure you hear this morning is that what we read in Hebrews 3 is not written to shake the foundation of a believer's assurance of salvation. That is not why these words were written. It's not to shake the foundation of a believer's assurance of salvation. Praise be to God that those in Christ can have assurance of their salvation. It also was not written to say that those who have experienced salvation can lose it. Because that's an easy thing to kind of fall prey to when you're saying, okay, there's parallels to us and the Israelites. We see the Israelites were, were delivered, were rescued. They were walking with God, and yet because of their sin and disobedience, they did not enter into God's rest. So Joel, if you're saying there's parallels well, then are you saying that you can experience your forgiveness of sins, your redemption and adoption into God's family, and because we're not home yet, there's a chance that you might not make it, that you could lose your salvation? That is not what the author of Hebrews is saying either. And so we want to dig in and see that everything in chapter 3 is written to encourage and empower Christians to be earnest, attentive, and focused in the fight to maintain a strong assurance in Christ. 
The point is that the people of Israel are an example of what not to do. An example for the readers. I want you to think about this for a moment. They had seen God's gracious works. They had experienced signs and wonders and miracles of mercy. They had tasted the heavenly gifts. But instead of being softened to trust God in the day when trials began to happen to them, when things really began to get difficult, they became hard and unbelieving and did not trust in God's goodness. But they, they murmured and they rebelled. For a short while, if, you're, if, you, if you've read through God delivering them from bondage in Egypt, the plagues, all of that story, using Moses as his instrument to bring the people out, for a short while they were satisfied in God and seemed to be confident in him being the provider and the protector. But what we see in that story is that it, it did not last. And that is why this example is so important to the writer to the Hebrews and why he, inspired by the Spirit, shares it, writes about it. He wants professing Christians to last, to persevere. And I, I say that term very uh, meaningfully. Professing Christians, those who profess Christ. This is written so that you would last, you would persevere. The only way to prove that you really are part of God's house, verse 6, and truly share in Christ's salvation is to persevere. It may sound like, okay, I'm not quite connecting all the dots, but, but it really is that, that clear from this text. In order to prove who you are, persevere. Continue to trust. Continue to depend upon the Lord day in and day out. That is what this book is written to, to inspire, to invoke, to exhort, and to also prevent you from falling prey like the Israelites. How many professing Christians make a really good start with God? They hear the gospel proclaimed, they say, yes, I want forgiveness of sins. Oh, yes, I want eternal life. I don't want to spend eternity in hell. All of that sounds really good if, if I, okay, believe in Jesus. Okay, I got it. That sounds great. And then we hear a parable like the parable of the soils told by Jesus in Luke chapter 8. There are two soils in particular that really resonate to what I think is being said about the Israelites in this passage. Now, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Here are the two soils that I'm referring to. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, they receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. So they receive it with great joy, but when trials come... Testing comes, they fall away. As for what fell among the thorns, this is another soil where the gospel falls on. They 
are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As time passes and the tests come, a season of no water in the wilderness is bound to happen to all of us. A weariness with God's provision. For the Israelites, it was manna. They got tired of eating manna. And suddenly, a growing craving for the fleeting pleasures of Egypt began to take root. Began to take root actually deeper than just surface level. You may say, well, they were just hungry for something else but from, than, than manna, than what God was providing. But something deeper was happening. They, they were craving the fleeting pleasures of even what they had when they were enslaved. In Numbers chapter 11, we hear this. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Israel was excluded from God's rest, from Canaan, because of their unbelief. Please hear me. They had the promises of God given to them, on which for a period of time they relied upon. But for another example given, the Numbers chapter 13 and 14, I want you to hear how they respond when the spies come back and give a report. Because I, I think it actually is very applicable to how we interact with God when, when difficulty arises. So please listen to God's word. And they, they told him, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. It's amazing. It really is what God said it was. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong. And the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell on the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses. Remember, Caleb and Joshua were also part of the spies who went. But they came back with a different message. They, they, he came, quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we all are well able to overcome it. Believe what God has promised. Then the men who had gone up with him, the other spies, said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we had gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. They determined in this rebellion to identify a new leader instead of Moses. And with that new leader, they wanted to return back to Egypt. There could, be, there could not be a more suitable foundation, what we just heard, for the exhortation against having an evil, unbelieving heart. 
In that setting for the Israelites, fear and apprehension, temptation and trial led them to disregard God's promises and determined to act in direct opposition to the one who had delivered them and the one who had provided for them. The result was that God was angry and cut them off from the promised land. Now, the point that I'm driving at here is that this will happen to professing Christians if we harden our hearts in the day of trial and murmur against God and throw away our confidence and hope in Him. I want to just state very clearly, the stakes are very high in how you respond to God in the midst of difficult circumstances. The story of Israel is an example for the professing church. Do not treat the grace of God with disrespect. Do not presume upon the grace of God, thinking, well, we received our escape from Egypt and then go on to not be satisfied with what God has given, what God has provided, what God has given as his guidance in the wilderness of this life. There is a sense in which, and God even explains or articulates that what happened in the wilderness was them presuming upon his grace. Oh, our God is so patient and his kindness should lead us to repentance. His long suffering should lead us to actually turn back to him and not presume upon his grace that you can, you can respond to him in, in whatever way you would like, maybe not even acknowledge him and go along your merry way and thinking that something that you might have said or professed in the past is going to be sufficient to cover you in the future. We need to be reminded that this is a relationship. You're not just receiving a, a ticket to be absolved of your sin and guilt and then just go on your merry way. You have been purchased, bought by the blood of the Lamb in order to be God's own and to completely and wholly rely upon him with every breath that you take. Every fiber of your being is to be focused in dependence, praise, adoration to your maker, your savior. What we're seeing with the Israelites is that they have experienced this deliverance and it's not enough. They're questioning if God is even with them because their life doesn't look the way that they want it to look. The circumstances that they're experiencing, uh -uh, that's not what I signed up for. And so they are mad and angry at the one who is in control of all things. This Christmas day, this is applicable to all of us. As you look back on what has happened this year and how you've responded, and then as you live right now, today, and what today will hold looking forward, I pray that those who say they are believers in Christ will persevere to the end. Now, we're going to get there. 
but I just have to say this. You do not do this in your own strength. It is by God's grace. The way that the author ends this letter is by letting us hear this, and I think we need to just hear it. Hebrews 13, you need to hear how this actually happens. It comes in the benediction. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes. Greet all your leaders and all the saints, those who come from Italy, send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. Need to back up just a little bit to the actual benediction. I went a little too far. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, please hear these words, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God is working in and through us to bring us to the end. So Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you, he is faithful to bring you to the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who will bring us through. The issue of perseverance is not first an issue of behavior. I don't want us to begin asking first, what, what actions then do I need to do? What does my life need to look exactly like? Again, that's behavior modification, and it's not at the core of what's going on in this passage. There can be a change in behavior without really addressing the root. And what the root is and what we see in our passage, it is all about the heart. So think about a tree. You find yourself in need of change, and you see on your tree, you're the tree, you've got some bad fruit. Your life is displaying some things that are not honoring God and are not good towards your neighbor, maybe your spouse, your children, your coworkers. You've got some bad fruit. So you're reading through the Bible, okay, what's the answer to, to fix this situation? Because the bad fruit is not leading to a life that's really that enjoyable, so I know something's got to change. The answer is not to take off the bad fruit and think about, okay, the fruit of the Spirit, I've got some good fruit, I'm going to tape it on to my tree and then display some good fruit and everything's going to change. We, we all know that that's kind of silly. If you tape fruit onto a fruit tree, that fruit's going to eventually just kind of rot and fall off. You haven't actually addressed the root. What's going on that's producing that bad fruit? And in this passage, the, the writer, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is helping us see that with the Israelites, it's much more than just what was coming out of their mouths and how they were responding, although that was manifesting what's going on in the heart. But there's this reality of wanting to drill down and say, don't miss this. It wasn't just the behavior that, that really clues us in, God lays bare the hearts of all these Israelites. Their heart was far from him. It was hardened towards him. The issue in this text is one of the heart. Here, look at verse 10. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. They have not known my ways. Why didn't the people get to enter into the promised land? 
You could say they, they sinned, they rebelled, they murmured and groaned and complained. But the way that he ends verse 19, we see a little bit more insight. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Okay, think about a fountain with me. A fountain is the source of whatever comes out of it, right? If you find that there is an issue with the origin, the fountain, you would be foolish to run downstream and start adding chemicals and some uh, elixirs and something that you think might make this, this water pure again. That would be simply foolishness to go there and not go to the source, the origin, and say this is what needs to be changed in order for whatever's flowing down there to be made clean and pure. Sin is what you do. This is from John Piper. It's so good. Sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. Think about the Israelites. Think about yourself. No one sins out of duty. We sin because it holds out some promise of happiness. That promise enslaves us until we believe that God is to be more desired than life itself. Hear from Psalm 63.3. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. My lips shall praise you. So he goes on to say, which means that the power of sin's promise is broken by the power of God's promise. The Israelites did not enter because of their unbelief. The sin was that they were not trusting, not finding their satisfaction in God and looking elsewhere for happiness, for fulfillment, for what they think they needed most. When we look at this passage, I, I want us to actually look at kind of all of chapter 3. I know we haven't been in the first few verses for some time. But I want, to, I want to read three verses for you and then kind of tie this together. When we think about persevering, not being able to lose your salvation, if you truly are sharing in Christ, hear these verses. Hebrews 3, 1, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. You who share in a heavenly calling. And then verse 6, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are God's house if, if indeed, we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And then verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ if, indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. It's very important to understand that as we read about all of the Israelites who experienced God's redemption from Egyptian bondage, his presence and provision, and yet did not enter into his rest, the author of Hebrews does not believe 
that you can truly share in Christ, share in his heavenly calling, and be part of his house, and then lose that salvation. This is tremendously important because as we work through the letter to the Hebrews, if you start buying into that logic that you can experience, share in Christ, be born again, and then somehow lose it, the way you interpret the the letter is going to really lead you to a bad hermeneutic, a bad interpretation of the book of Hebrews. So I think it's important for us to tackle the if. The if keeps creeping its, its, its head out or up. We see the if in verse 6, and we see the if in verse 14. Now, now please follow me here because this is really important. If you have come to share in Christ... That's the, the if, and that could be considered in the past. Then in the future, if we hold our original conf- confidence firm to the end. So we have come to share in Christ. That's something that we profess has happened. If we in the future hold our original confidence firm to the end. Then the conclusion that we should draw is that those who hold firm to the end have actually been those who share in Christ. I am not trying to confuse. I actually hope that this clarifies some things because you could come upon these ifs and think, okay, what I'm reading is there's a chance that I could somehow be part of the family of God and then at another time lose out on being part of the family of God. It would be wrong to say If we do not hold fast our assurance, then even though we once came to share in Christ, nevertheless, we now lose our part in Christ. That is actually the opposite of what this verse says. It says, please hear me, verse 14, we have come to share in Christ if we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And if we do not hold our original confidence firm to the end, then we have not ever shared actually in Christ. So not holding fast to our assurance does not make us lose our salvation. Rather, it shows that we were never truly saved. I hope that makes sense. It reminds me of 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would not have, I'm sorry, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might be become plain that they all are not of us. When you look at the Israelites, what actually verified that they never shared in Christ was that they did not persevere. The holding our confidence in Christ and persevering actually is the validation that we do share in Christ. In that passage in 1 John, those who went out from us and never came back actually validated that they never actually were of us. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. How many professing Christians want the mercy of forgiveness so that they won't go to hell, 
but have hard hearts towards the Lord when it comes to gratefully submitting to his lordship, obeying his commands, understanding that whatever you experience in this life, it is not outside of his control, but yet he is sovereign over all things. And so circumstances that come your way that you might not want to see happen are actually being used by God, working all things together for your good if you are called according to his purposes. If you want to be assured that you are of God's household, test to see if you hope in God and have confidence in God and look to God for your security, for your happiness, for your satisfaction. And let that be more than just lip service. What's going on in your heart? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. My prayer is that we will be able to return to this passage, Lord willing, and really dig into the, the, the grace verse that we recited together that I read, specifically verses 12 and 13. Because we need to, as a body, understand first, the deceitfulness of sin, and number two, our great need to be in each other's lives. And as we come to the end of this year, what more appropriate way for us to, to meditate and think upon God's word than to think about what happened to the Israelites, understand that the seriousness of this call to persevere and to trust even in the midst of hardship, and then to see from God's word this exhortation that sin is deceitful. Please don't miss this. You cannot do the Christian life by yourself. This is how God has orchestrated because sin is so deceitful. We've all seen horses as we travel the roads around here and many of them as they're out in the pasture will have blinders over their eyes. And you can ask people who know more about horses exactly why that is. There are probably a lot of different reasons. I'm looking at Pete. He's like, what are you doing up there talking about horses? <laughs> yeah, but when we think about what is being obscured from them, there is a reality that they need help. They can't actually see what's beyond the blinders, right? We underestimate the deceitfulness of sin. And what we see in this passage is this exhortation that we need, to, we need to be in each other's lives, look at verses 12 and 13, and exhort one another today because of the need to not, not be blinded by sin, not be deceived by sin. How do we do that? We don't just kind of think, well, I've got a good word to say to my brother or sister today out of my own kind of concoction. No, 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 no. We are brothers and sisters dependent upon God's word and what we do is we simply move into a believer's life who is struggling, lift up God's word and say, I love you enough to show you that where you are going is actually displeasing to our Father. And it leads down a road of tragedy and heartache. I love you enough to show you what you're doing and what God says and how to repent and turn. That is the one anothering that needs to happen. And that is the call from this particular passage 
to exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This day, I pray that you give heed to the word of God. Do not harden your heart. Wake up to the deceitfulness of sin. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our great confession, and hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope, which is the Lord Jesus and him alone. Let us pray. Father, we come to you this morning praying that by the power of the Spirit, you would reveal in our lives any area where there has been a hardness of heart, where we have been deceived by sin, where we have responded to circumstances in a way that has not honored you, that has actually revealed unbelief. God, may this be a day of repentance. We pray that we would trust, we would rely, we would understand, God, that you are sovereign and that you are good and not be hardened or bitter by what happens to us in this life. God, may our response be a song of praise like the first part of Psalm 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. On this Christmas day, Father, I pray that we would spend time rehearsing your great deliverance, your great providence, your great provision, how you have cared for us. And may it stir in us songs of praise and thanksgiving and not bitterness and anger and resentment. If that is in our hearts, God, in your kindness, lead us to repentance. And Father, may we have eyes to see those around us that need to be exhorted, need to be encouraged, admonished, rebuked, gently come alongside and cared for so that they would not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. God, by the work of the Spirit, do a work at Grace Covenant Church that we would love each other enough to move and to care and to engage with one another for your glory and our good, we pray. Amen.